Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. The ninth chapter of John's Gospel is about the healing of a very deep blindness, a blindness that definitively transcends any physical malady. Uh, and I wanted to speak to you today so uh, desperately about soulish blindness, a condition from which we are all recovering. Uh, and a soulish blindness simply means the inability to perceive what is brazenly true. Uh, and this happens, of course, in human experience. And the more nightmarish the situation, the more evident the blindness becomes. I was thinking about Hitler's munitions officer, Speer, who uh, said very compellingly uh, to the courts uh, that, uh, that had eventually tried him that you don't understand what Nazi guards were like. Most Nazi guards were, in fact, good men who, you know, remembered Mother's Day. And they were always decent to their spouses and children. But these are good men whose eyes had eventually adjusted to the darkness. That was Speer's quote. Uh, but these were men who became blind. You know, when Stalin was killing millions in Russia, Hewlett Johnson, the dean of the Canterbury Cathedral, spoke of Stalin as one who was ushering forth the kingdom of Christ. Blindness. Now, when Roman Catholic bishops or evangelical celebrity pastors were abusing or covering up abuse, so many of them really believed and outwardly confessed that they were trying to protect the institution. Blindness. And it's easy to pick on Speer and Stalin, and bishops and evangelical celebrity pastors, but what about us? What about our own blindness, our own inability to see what is brazenly true? Uh, I think I become blind whenever I hear a new sound in my car that I do not like to hear. <laughs> I'm sure it will work itself out in time. Uh, or maybe we have a, a child right now, a child who is withdrawing and becoming very antisocial, and we think, well, this is just a phase, it'll, it'll work itself out. Or we have a sibling who every time they gather with the family, clearly something is wrong, clearly there is a drug at play, there is an opiate at play, but we don't say anything. Uh, or when it comes to our own emotional problems, our own rage, uh, our own uh, deceit, we just keep playing the game, turning a blind eye to our own moral deficiencies and decay, or our own in inability to receive love. I was talking to somebody recently um, at, at a church in Philadelphia who was really struggling uh, being married to somebody who simply could not receive any kind of love or affection, and she said, look, he's you know, I try writing letters, I try complimenting him, I spend time with him, and he's just unable to receive love from anybody given how he was raised, and he spent his whole life like this, and I'm exhausted by trying to convince this person that he's loved, but he was blind to love. 
And so I, I want to consider with you this soulish blindness, deep blindness, because John chapter 9 is uh, more than the healing of literal eyes that don't function. It's about deep blindness and deep sight. So let me talk about both tonight. Deep blindness. Well, that is primarily the malady of the Pharisees in John chapter 9. But I want to begin by mentioning that the disciples, too, are a little blind. They have some blindness as well that Jesus deals with because they misperceive the cause of the tragedy that has befallen this uh, blind man. This is verse 1. I invite you to follow along. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, I want you to notice right away that he suffers from a very specific kind of blindness, blindness from birth. That is not blindness caused from, you know, some teenage self-inflicted skateboard injury uh, or something in a wood shop or that he was the victim of, a, of an attack, you know, like quail hunting with Dick Cheney. Um, but uh, some of you are old enough to remember that. Um, those tragedies are simply a matter of cause and effect, right? <laughs> Bang goes the gun, blind goes the eyes. Um, but cause and effect. Blind from birth, though, is a, that's a harder nut to crack. Harder nut to crack. Because where's the justice in that? Where's the obvious cause and effect? Uh, because the, the disciples are entirely convinced that something caused this. And more than that, a moral deficiency certainly caused this physical malady. There's no other way to think about it. They lived in this theological world of cause and effect, sort of an immediate karma that, that has struck this man. And in a way, they're raising a very complicated question. Is it him or his parents that sinned because he was born blind? Well, how could it have been him? I mean, he was born blind. He didn't have a lot of opportunity to go to Vegas yet, you know. Um, but there was a belief, a rabbinic belief in that day that even souls that are in utero can somehow offend their maker. And so maybe, maybe they imagined that that was a condition that led to this, uh, this, this situation. Or his parents. Why would they think that? Well, the Old Testament teaches, does it not, that, uh, that uh, God visits the sins of the fathers onto the children under the fourth generation? And so maybe that was floating around in their minds as they asked the question. But either way, they thought somebody is at fault, and it's our job to diagnose the, uh, the person at fault. Uh, and I just want to take a step back from the disciples and their very narrow understanding of the world to feel for the man who is uh, being questioned by them. Let's feel for the blind man this, who has a flaw that is obvious and unhidden an unhidden flaw that inhibits him every single day of his life. He's never been on a date. He can't hold a job. Um, and, uh, and his parents don't know what to do with him. Uh, his parents are very complicated individuals. And he is there, no doubt, pondering, as the disciples did in front of him, uh, why he was uh, physically defective. And he knows, of course, and this pours salt into the wounds, that other people are asking the same exact question, why is he defective? And uh, some people, I'm sure, in the audience were thinking, you know, he did have his eyes uh, taken from him. I bet God jabbed out his eyes for a very good reason. And maybe it's our job to find out why. So he lives with all of that <clears throat> in his brain and uh, lots of people blaming him uh, for this. Now, by the way, whenever you encounter somebody in your own personal life who has uh, been 
ransacked by rampant and seemingly indiscriminate tragedy, please, please, please don't try to find a reason. I mean, I suppose you could try to blame them, or you could try to blame the, the, the man, whatever that is, uh, or the government, or whatever, but I think the, the more that we pay attention to the theology behind the scenes, which we often cannot deduce or understand, instead of the person who's actually suffering, uh, the more damage we do, just for what it's worth. Uh, and what's interesting about Jesus, of course, is that he does not engage with his disciples' question. Did you notice that? He's not really interested in, in trying to deduce uh, uh, a victim, except to correct them by saying, it was not this man who sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. In other words, uh, he is not really, um, <clears throat> he's not really interested in playing their game. What he's trying to say to them is, look, uh, this man, this unfortunate, came into the world in such a way not to display sin, but to display sin's antithesis. You want to see something glorious? You're about to see something glorious of God in the very one from whom you thought God was distancing himself. So, uh, so that's, uh, that's some of the disciples' blindness, but blindness is ultimately displayed by the Pharisees because their vision as they engage with the blind man and with Jesus, grows increasingly blurry over the length of this narrative. By the way, I, I need to notice it's, note with you, it's not all the Pharisees, because it says in verse 16 that there was a division among them. The gospel according to John is not anti-Jewish or anti-Pharisee. Uh, it is against the leaders of Israel who were antagonistic to Jesus, but not all of them were. There was a division amongst the Pharisees. But particularly with the Pharisees that condemned Jesus and the blind man, this text is a pretty dark judgment. The first thing that happens in the, uh, in, the <coughs> in the antagonized Pharisee group is that they get nervous when Jesus seems to reject their traditional understanding of the law. This is verse 16. Just take a look at it. Where uh, Jesus, they say, is breaking the Sabbath. How? By making mud as a salve to heal the blind man. Now, why would they make a big deal out of that? Because there's no Old Testament text that says, you shall not spit into dirt and make a salve. I mean, that's sort of a weird thing to do, and there are theological reasons for it, but no time today. Uh, that's a weird thing to do, but there's no Old Testament commandment that says you can't do that. So where did they get this idea? Well, it was from the Talmud, now the, uh, or the developing Talmud at the time, sort of the extra laws that were set to um, protect people from breaking the actual laws within the Old Testament canon. And one of those laws, uh, um, start, one of the sets of laws defined uh, what people uh, were and were not allowed to do uh, regarding dust and mud, and so forth. In fact, there was one law, a very explicit law in the Talmud, that says that if you're at dinner at somebody's house on the Sabbath, or your, your own uh, house having Shabbat, uh, Shabbat meal, and you sit in a chair, and you scoot the chair back on the floor, and you leave marks in the floor where the, where the dirt was moved because of the chair moving back, you've broken the Sabbath, You've broken the day of rest because technically some might consider that planting a field 
or plowing a field. I mean, I'm not making this stuff up. That's how nuts it got. And so lots of people are worried about dirt and mud and all sorts of things, and they were worried about it. Uh, And so they think Jesus hasn't broken biblical law, but has broken pharisaical law, which makes him a dubious person who is sort of a licentious liver and doesn't uh, doesn't care about the pharisaical ideal. Well, that's their first concern. And then they grow more nervous. And in verse 17, uh, they believe that Jesus, or assert that Jesus has dubious origins. In verse 17, they say to the blind man, we are Moses' disciple, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. Now, what they're doing is they are disassociating Jesus with the legal brilliant source of the Old Testament. We follow him. We follow him. We are under his shadow. But Jesus clearly has dislodged himself from the great lawgiver of our tradition and read between the lines. He obviously doesn't consider himself under the yoke of Torah. More than that, some scholars make a lot of hay out of this, and I'm not sure how much hay to make out of it, but we don't know where he comes from. Uh, Another comment was made earlier in the New Testament by the Pharisees in, in the same with the same energy, might indicate that they are suspicious of Jesus' own birth origins, meaning rumors regarding his mother and her pregnancy have gotten out there, and so people are nervous about Jesus' origin story and thinking that he was an illegitimate child. Maybe, maybe not, but they are suggesting that Jesus is illegitimate by not being under the umbrella of Mosaic authority. And then they step up their game in verse 24, if you would look at it, they make an official claim about Jesus' ethical quality or his moral nature. They say in verse 24, this man is a sinner. What do they mean by that? That he is somebody who willfully persists in a mode that is deliberately anti-God. Whatever God is, Jesus is representing the opposite of that. And then lastly, in verse 34, they finally act and act legally uh, against the man who was healed. In verse 34, they say to him, you were born in utter sin, would you teach us? And they cast him out. Notice how this is connected to the beginning of our narrative. They attack the blind man because of his previously blind status of deserving it. You were born in utter sin. That uh, born language uh, was used at the beginning of our passage. You were born in utter sin. In other words, your condition uh, is one that you personally warranted. And then, of course, because that wasn't enough, they cast him out or excommunicate him. Uh, They kick him out of the temple precincts. In uh, in other words, the Pharisees have become so antagonistic to Jesus that they're not only against Jesus as a person, they're against anyone who is positive regarding Jesus. So their antagonism has grown to anybody who claims to be a disciple of Christ. And this passage, therefore, shows a progression in their visual astigmatism, their spiritual astigmatism. The Pharisees' vision gets darker um, and... Note at the very end of the passage, they ask Jesus a somewhat loaded, um, uh, nasty question. Are we also blind? Not because they were really considering the fact that that might be their actual condition, but they are evidencing the fact that they are blind to their own blindness. They can't even see that they're blind. Uh, You know, I just want to simply say to you that spiritual blindness, friends, doesn't create no sight. It creates errant sight. Errant sight 
It inverts the universe in which they see themselves as righteous and Jesus as damned. That's how they understand the world. And what's so sad about this blind to their blindness bit is that the Pharisees could easily pass a polygraph exam. They're being true to themselves. And they really thought up until the cross that they were doing the right thing, the noble, moral, virtuous thing, by putting to death someone who was aberrant and dangerous. That's blindness, somewhat evidenced by the disciples, certainly evidenced by the Pharisees. But then, of course, there is sight, beautiful, gorgeous sight in this passage. Uh, this unstudied, unwashed, blind man slowly opens his eyes, and with each interaction, his inner sight grows just as the Pharisees diminishes. At first, of course, this blind man is just a blind man, you know, begging along with other blind men. He knows very little about Jesus, but he learns his name because uh, Jesus tells him to do certain things and announces himself and uh, and and, um, and there's a passage that says, this man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me to do thus and such. And so uh, he knows Jesus' name, but that's it. He's like, I knew a guy's name and the guy told me to do certain things and I did it so I can see. That's all he knows about Jesus. But then later in verse 17, he gives Jesus a more impressive title. Verse 17 says, what do you say about him? The Pharisees ask, since he has opened your eyes. And the blind man responds, he's a prophet. Well, that's a very impressive thing. You know, there are only a limited number of prophets in the Old Testament, so he's here likening Jesus to somebody like Daniel or Isaiah or Ezekiel. I mean, that's, that's a very massive thing to say. And then in verse 31, he doubles down and says Jesus is clearly on God's side. He starts to argue with the Pharisees a little bit because they're becoming increasingly antagonistic, and he stands up for Jesus saying clearly he has to be on God's team because, I mean, look at the effects. He says in verse 31, we know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if every, anyone is a worshiper of God and does what, is, what God's will is, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And then later, later in verse 36, after he was excommunicated, and notice Jesus hunts down the excommunicated man. He goes after the blind man. And in verse 36, Jesus asks him, do you believe in the Son of Man? That's different than just giving him a title, like a prophet. Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, and I love this, you have seen him. Or some translations, you are seeing him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. So now he's professing personal faith in the one who's healed him. He's not just some distant miracle worker that he as a blind man happened to benefit from. No, instead, he's leaning in to the figure of Jesus with personal trust. And then lastly, in verse 38, he worships Jesus. Text simply says, and he worshiped him. In other words, he does more than just give Jesus a title. He does more than just trust in Jesus. He associates the Jesus in whom he trusts with Israel's God. He worships him. He notices the deity that is implicit in this man. He worships him. Quite a scandalous thing. And so what I want to simply say is that this man experiences two miracles, one physical and one existential. 
He sees, but he sees robustly. He sees with his physical eyes, and he sees with the eyes of a renewed heart. And of the two miracles, the existential sight, the spiritual sight, is more important because uh, the other can be gained or lost. But this existential sight becomes his new center, his new reality, where he sees things as they are. And I simply want to point out that the Pharisees' uh, trajectory is the complete opposite of the blind man's trajectory within this narrative. The blind man's sight becomes clear, while the seeing man's uh, sight becomes dim. Making sense of what Jesus says in verse 39, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Uh, Friends, evil wants to keep us in the dark and to make us blind to reality. And true spirituality, flowing from the person and action of Christ, always involves the beginning of sight. And this sight imagery or blindness to sight imagery occurs again and again in the Bible. Just two famous examples. There's St. Paul, of course, a one-time persecutor of Christians who was converted by Christ, and then several days later, scales fell from his eyes so he could see. Disciples on the road to Emmaus, crushed because of Jesus' horrific public execution, were mourning the death of him and the movement, but Jesus appeared to them walking alongside them. They didn't recognize that it was Jesus, though, until he explained the word to them and then broke bread in front of them, and the text says, and their eyes were opened, and they saw him. St. Paul, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, developed that kind of third sight, that deeper sight. And so, if you really are encountering God, and it's real, what will happen is you'll begin to see. You'll begin to have the eyes of your heart that were at one time blinded, opened, and you're going to begin to see reality as it is. Yourself as you are, others as they are, and ultimately God as he is. And so how is our spiritual blindness cured? How does it happen? How does it keep happening for us? Well, I think we get a hint of it in Jesus' paradoxical statement to the Pharisees. He says this bizarre thing to them. If you were blind, you would be without sin. But since you say, we see, your guilt remains. Here's how I think we begin to see in life. And here's how I think everyone, including ourselves, will benefit from our Uh, from our sight that we gain. Sight begins by admitting blindness. Sight begins, true sight begins by admitting blindness. Oddly enough, we begin to see not by claiming expertise and awareness, that is, seeing rightly, but by confessing our ignorance, our soulish lack of perspective, Not by being like the disciples at the beginning of the narrative, trying to figure out who messed up. Certainly not like being the Pharisees who uh, were antagonistic to this beautiful miracle that befell this man. No, true sight begins by confessing ignorance, limitation, and a soulish lack of perspective. Because here's the harrowing truth at the theological basement of this story. Here it is. All of us. That is, the blind man, the Pharisees, the disciples, and the rest of us, we are all blind from birth. Every single one of us, born blind. 
Uh, Christians call this original sin. And very much like the Pharisees, we are blind to our own blindness. We often think we're doing quite well. Some people say, wouldn't a sinner outside of Christ automatically feel crushing, crushing, horrible guilt all the time? No, of course not. No, it's the beginning of a conversion narrative when somebody starts to feel the pangs of guilt from the Holy Spirit that drives them to the cross, that sense the law's condemnation and then run to Calvary for absolution. No, like the Pharisees, we can often be blind to our blindness. And we come to church, we come to this place, not to parade our perception, but to confess our blindness. We come here to see where we have it wrong. And friends, when we begin to see our blindness, not be blind to it, but see our blindness, that is when we, ourselves are, when we understand ourselves to be wrong, misguided, self-righteous, self-deluded, and defensive, when we begin to see these things, you know what's happening? Heaven's optometrist is at work. That's Jesus. That's Jesus unveiling certain things that are, that are awry, showing you, um, showing you, giving you sight. Jesus is opening the eyes of our hearts to see things as they are and to see him as he is. Paradoxically, I think the admission of blindness in certain areas is the beginning of new sight. There's a man who discovered this for himself, a very famous man. Some of you in this room will have heard the story. But his name is John Newton. He was an 18th century slave trader responsible for the destruction and deaths of thousands of innocent men and women on the African continent. Well, he was dramatically, in his mid-career, mugged by reality and converted to Christ and became an outspoken critic of the slave trade as well as an Anglican minister. In fact, he influenced the English parliamentarian uh, William Wilberforce, who persuaded the English government to make slavery illegal. Well, Newton was so shocked and appalled by his former spiritual condition and so awestruck by God's invasive love to him that he penned these famous words that we will sing tonight about his former spiritual condition and his current one. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Years later, Newton quite tragically and unexpectedly became physically blind, not just spiritually blind, but physically blind. Yet he retained this third sight of the Savior that was never really diminished. His spiritual perception was communicated beautifully in one of his last letters that he'd ever written. Uh, Actually, he dictated it to somebody so they could write it, but this is what was written. Though my memory is fading, I remember two things quite clearly. I am a great sinner but Christ is a great Savior. And he continues, We were all once blind, blind to God's beauty and insensible to his love. And we should have remained that way to the end. But he interrupted us with his goodness. And he was so very fond of us when we did not seek him. In the end, you... And me, we are the blind one in the temple. And a very attentive Jesus sought after us, came for you, came for me, even me. And he is staring at you today. And so if you want your sight, you can have it. Amen. Free at last.
They took your life, they could not take your 